Hi, and welcome to another episode of SwitchCast, a podcast delving into the world of film brought to you by the team at Switch. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Charlie David Page. I'm Jess Benton. I'm Brent Davidson. And I'm Jake Watt. It's Thursday, the 8th of March, 2018. On this week's show, the drama, the intrigue, ooh, the outrage, grr. Ooh. We have all the action from the 90th Academy Awards. Plus, was the correct name actually read out for the best picture? Stay tuned. Mm. And did you know that the real mafia did not allow the producers of The Godfather to use the word mafia in the movie? And that the 40th president of the United States was denied the role of a president because he didn't look presidential enough? We'll take a look at some of the most useless yet intriguing facts about Hollywood and its stars. And if I know one thing, it's how to be useless. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, all our reviews and giveaways. Let's kick things off with In the Fade, the film which took out best foreign language film at this year's Golden Globes. Jess took this one in, so was it a worthy winner? Katya, Diane Kruger, is the wife to ex-con, Turkish immigrant turned model citizen Nuri, Numan Akar, and mother to eight-year-old Rocco. On a day when Katya leaves Rocco in his father's care while she indulges her pregnant sister, Nuri and Rocco are killed in a racially charged bomb attack. Paralyzed by grief, we watch as Katya runs the gamut of emotions and actions to deal with her pain, made all the worse by the ignorant police investigation that tries to tie the crime to Nuri and his shadowed past. Drugs, fighting with her mother and disconnecting herself from those who wish to help. Eventually, the only thing that keeps Katja getting up in the morning is the promise that justice will soon be served. When the agonizing trial yields unexpected results, Katja seeks her own justice. Or is it just revenge? Based on the Hark Bomb book, In the Fade took home the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film, yet failed to garner a nomination at the Oscars. Star Diane Kruger also took home Best Actress at the Cannes International Film Festival, and rightfully so. She is without a doubt the best feature of this project. Appearing in almost every frame, she dominates this gruelling film with a performance that is nothing shy of perfection. The screenplay is sparse to say the least, so it relies almost entirely on Diane's ability to convey everything that's not being said, not just by her, but the characters around her. And she nails it. This is her defining performance to date. Written for the screen and directed by German-Turkish filmmaker Fatih Akan, he's tried to place a very real and very frightening trend in today's Germany into a fictional story. Unfortunately, shoving a square peg into a round hole is never going to work. The film's political motivations and moral righteousness eventually lose their footing and this once powerful and devastating story spirals into one of unsettling revenge. Three stars. So I haven't actually seen uh, any of Fatih Aiken's films before, but um, I have seen a few Diane Kruger movies, and she's pretty amazing. I, I would I would believe that she she would carry a film, maybe not a English language film, because her English language films are kind of like National Treasure and National Treasure Two and Three <laughs> and stuff like that. But, um, Inglorious Bastards. Oh, some fantastic yeah. films. I love National Treasure. What are you talking about? The National Treasure films are National Treasures. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I don't begrudge Diane Kruger, like, you know, having to eat and stuff like that. So, like, that's all good. But, like, her, um, her foreign language <laughs> films, her foreign language films like The Hunting Party and, um, and Joy Noel and things like that. Um, she's, like, she's amazing. Mm. She's a pretty interesting actress to watch. And this film as well, like, um, In the Fade. So, it won the, the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film, beating uh, A Fantastic yeah. Woman. Yeah. Yeah. Square, but it got shut out for an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. But A Fantastic Woman and The Square are nominated for Academy Awards. So it's kind of funky. Yeah, it's really weird that uh, that it didn't even get recognized for the Oscars at all. Like it was the German submission for the category, but it just didn't make it into the final five, which does seem really odd if it has taken out the Golden Globe. It's not like it's not been recognized elsewhere. It was in the running for the Palme d'Or as well. Um, so it, it, it really had a lot going for it. It's kind of surprising that... That it didn't end up in the in the final five, but um, perhaps Jess's review is actually the reason <laughs> for that. Mm. Jess, I have a question for you. Go. So, just how grueling is it? That's a very like powerful word to use to describe yeah. a film. Are there bits that are really hard to watch or get through? Oh or God, is it just yes. Really depressing. Oh no, no, no! There are bits that are really hard to watch. Like she just descends like wholeheartedly into grief. And there is a, um, a really slow, drawn-out graphic scene once she hits rock bottom that is really, really uncomfortable to watch. 
but no, absolutely. I'm I'm st- I'm sticking by the word grueling because you just watch her. Um, <laughs> you just watch her absolutely dissolve almost every relationship around her, and she turns to drugs and alcohol and isolation, and it's um yeah, it's quite bad. And then obviously the the grief comes about again when she has to sit in court and listen to everything that happened to her husband and her child during the event while mm. the perpetrators are only feet away from her. Ugh, it is it's full on. on. Uh, so you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au and In the Fade is in cinemas now. Also out today is 12 Strong. Set in the days following 9-11, it tells the true story of an elite US Special Forces unit whose chosen mode of transportation is horseback. They are chosen to be the first US soldiers sent to Afghanistan for an extremely dangerous mission in response to the attacks. Every step we take is going to be on a minefield from a hundred different wars. Odds are we're not all going to make it out of this one. If we don't take that city, World Trade Center is just the beginning. We're teaming up with the general of the Northern Alliance that we know nothing about. General, you show me exactly where we're going. Well, what are the mountains? We take horses. All right, who's ridden before, anyone? Summer camp when I was nine. Spring break when I was pretty hammered. Does it have a name? The name? Hey, this will be fun. We're outnumbered. 50,000 Taliban al-Qaeda fighters. We're on our own. With some of Hollywood's it men, including Chris Hemsworth, Michael Shannon, and Michael Pena, 12 Strong is a film that follows in the hoofsteps of 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. I don't know about anyone else, but the warning signs that I'm getting from this film is propaganda, propaganda, no, is, propaganda. Is anyone else sick to death of these movies? Just like, look how great we are. We go into other people's countries and we oh, I'm their so muscles. bored. Yeah. It truly breaks my heart that Chris Hemsworth is in this movie. They should have called it American Horses. It's like American <laughs> Sniper, American Horses. The original book was actually called Horse Soldiers. Oh. So I just think like it like sounds like centaurs to me. They're describing like some sort of like armored, <laughs> half human, half uh, horse like soldier who like uh, anyway. Sorry, I, I, I digress. That's what this film is really missing. Thank clearly. you, Jake. I'd be much more interested. <laughs> I'd be much more interested in this film yeah. if it was that. It's yeah. it's just not a new story, is it? Mm-hmm. There's nothing new about this. Yeah. Plus, Chris Hemsworth, he's not American. He's better than this. I don't know why he's here, and it gives me icky feelings that he is. If mm. Michael Shannon as well. And Michael Pena. They're all too good for this movie. It's another American war glorification film. Yeah, like like Americans have this thing where it's like, you know, these war movies especially, it's like how to be you know, cowboy to the max, like a soldier and, you know, cool dialogue and gunfights and whatever. And this movie to me seems like how can we cowboy it up to the next level? In the last couple of weeks when obviously the promo for this film has been in full swing, when the headline that dominates it all is the fact that Chris Hemsworth and his wife, Elsa, are playing husband and wife in this film. And isn't that exciting? You know that it's there's wow. there's nothing good <laughs> awaiting you in that cinema. I bet you they weren't in any scenes together. It's all going to be fo- phone calls. <laughs> but it's like, do you mean that they're husband and wife in real life and on screen? Oh, my God. Shut up and take my money. <laughs> I would have preferred this film to have been, like, told from the perspective of the horses <laughs> as well. Instead of us hearing Chris Hemsworth or whatever talk about stupid shit like, boy, I sure do miss home. <laughs> Who cares? Um, you hear the horses be like, Oh, man, I hope they're not going to lead us into that cave. Oh, shit. We're going to get led in that cave. Oh, no. Barney died. <laughs> it was a funny fact. Like, the guy who wrote this movie, actually, he also wrote All the Pretty Horses, um, the Billy Bob Thornton adaptation yeah. of the Cormac McCarthy novel. Oh, from- my God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hashtag horse fetish. And um, he was also, like, and uh, his name's Ted Talley, and he's probably most famous for The Sons of the Lambs. So, oh, right. I don't know, he has, like, a nice kind of animal theme going in his... Um, <laughs> His uh, body of work. He also did Red Dragon, so that's, yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah. But having said that, he also didn't write anything between Red Dragon in 2002 and 12 Strong in 2018. So, yeah, obviously living off the credits from Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs money. He's been spending time on his estate with all his horses. We Like, come on. Just riding them, brushing them, feeding them, giving them sugar cubes. Creating lovely watercolours of them. Some mercy for you all. Also out today is The Mercy. The film tells the incredible true story of amateur sailor Donald Crowhurst, played by Colin Firth, and his attempt to win the first non-stop, single-handed, round-the-world yacht race in 1968. Have you ever done anything like that before? That's the point. If I can do it, then so can the bloke who stares at the horizon. If I'm putting in the money, what are you putting in? Everything else. I 
fooled myself into thinking we were just building a boat. I didn't think I'd actually have to watch you sail away. That's what boats do. Promise me you'll come home. Any sane man would want to pull out of such an endeavor. Leave your doubts with us here on the shore. Good luck, Daddy! Take your dreams out to sea. A great deal of pressure falls on the man alone on a boat. The sea shows no mercy. Where are the leaders? 3,000 miles ahead. If I go on, my chances of survival would be 50-50. If I turn back, I face certain ruin. I can't go on, and I can't go home. So where else is there? I'm here. What if I tell them I'm here? Donald Crowher has been posting some remarkable speeds. What do I do now? A new single-handed record! I'm out here alone! Also starring Rachel Weiss, David Felwers and Ken Stott, the film is directed by James Marsh, the man behind The Theory of Everything. It also features one of the final scores by Johan Johansson, who sadly passed away last month. For me, I guess, this is... Um, well, there's like sort of two uh, exciting things to look at in this movie, depending on where you're coming from. So this is the follow-up film from James Marsh, who directed The Theory of Everything, which was pretty popular. I thought it was pretty shit. But it's also the final score by Johan Johansson, who composed the scores for Prisoners, Arrival, The Theory of Everything, Sicario, Mother, and a few other things as well. But I guess to me, that anyway, that's like sort of the main draw of this. He has one more to come out, maybe two. Um, he did Mary Magdalene's score mm. and a Nicolas Cage film called Mandy, which we will probably all be very skeptical about, but it was actually premiered at Sundance. So yeah, you never know. <laughs> at least for me, like the mercy is like the opposite of Mandy. I am super excited excited for Mandy. If you if you know anything like about the movie Mandy, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you don't, please like search for information on this movie. It sounds awesome. And the Mercy to me just sounds a true story, but it's like super dry. <laughs> dry. Um, yeah. So so dry. Set on water. <laughs> um as someone who has recently seen and reviewed in the fade, this movie yeah. sounds depressing to me. <laughs> Yes, it's a, it's a true story and it's such a bizarre one, but it just sounds so dank and lonely and depressing and crazy and this guy's just descent into complete and utter madness. This is not appealing in any way, shape or form to me. Do you think Colin Firth like has the range to pull that off? Yeah, I love me some Colin Firth, but pff, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, she went and did that Pride and Prejudice tour, yeah, so did. she's definitely into Colin Firth. <laughs> she's she's down with the Colin Firth. Of course I do. <laughs> Nobody forgets things like that, Jess. But it is, it, it's a strangely impressive cast for a really very almost lacklustre story. Mm. Like, Rachel Weiss as this poor wife who's trying to convince her husband, who has no sailing experience, by the way, not to go out and do this yacht race and then has to hang out at home and look after the kids and wonder whether the guy's dead or not. Michelle Williams is probably busy or something, I guess. Uh, she must have been. She, she was clearly busy filming one of the other three films that she's got out this year in that with that particular storyline. Oh, my God. So. Can I give you guys – I know that I, it's a bit of a spoiler alert for later on in the uh, in the podcast <laughs> – but this is a fun fact. Um, Spoiler or teaser? Teaser. Ooh, teaser. This is a fun, fun fact about Donald Crowhurst. His mother longed for a daughter and Crowhurst was dressed as a girl until the age of seven. Seven? That's way too old to be dressed oh. as a girl. Well, here's, a, here's another piece of fun trivia. At 55, Colin Firth is actually 20 years older than Donald Crowhurst when he set off on his Golden Globe race. The prize was only £5,000. Yeah, which back then would have been a lot. In the 60s, yeah. Yeah, as of 2016, the equivalent of £60,000. Still, I feel like it would cost, wouldn't that cost like a about boat. how much? Yeah. yeah. Although, yeah, he did basically like build his from scratch, which, you know, may have been another reason for the yeah. end result, but yeah. <laughs> No, no judgment. No it judgment. It's fascinating, these kinds of people, isn't it? Like, what would possess someone who has no boating experience to circumnavigate the globe? What possesses someone who doesn't know how to swim to compete in the Olympics in swimming? Yes. <laughs> Have you not seen Moana? Do you not know the call of the sea? Like, <laughs> honestly. I've been staring at the edge of the water. It was yeah. in her blood, so great. Charlie. And she had Maui to help her. And the ocean was her friend. I don't think the ocean was um, the ocean this was guy's friend. <laughs> they, this could be really interesting because they have weeks of his log entries as he descended into madness. So 
Like, they could go on a really interesting way of making the film. I don't get the feeling that they mm-hmm. are, but imagine all those log entries. Like, how fascinating. It's like all those children from that weird family where they were all locked in the basement or whatever. They all were only allowed to write in journals. Imagine reading those journals and how messed up they'd be. I'm interested. I want to read the log. I want to read the journals. Delightfully sadistic, Brent. <laughs> well, it would just be interesting, like, how weird he'd get. It's just kind of like, you know, what did I do today? I looked at the ocean. I ate some, like, squid. <laughs> had, a, had a great conversation with, like, a seagull. It's pretty boring. No, no sign of land. <laughs> I'm still doomed. Yeah. Unless you're, like, a really, like, sort of really rich fantasy life. And it's all about him trying to cover up his lies. So, from what I can tell, in the end, his writings... Oh, spoiler alert. His writings during the voyage became poems, quotations, and false log entries and random thoughts. <laughs> Holy fuck, he drank Never a lot of seawater, didn't he? Also exclusive to Acme this Saturday and Sunday is West Wind, Jalu's Legacy. This documentary looks at an aging Aboriginal elder in a line 60,000 years long who is running out of time to pass on the history of his people. When Jalu breaks with tradition to try and save it, musician Gautier becomes an unexpected family member and helps heal Jalu's son and amplify his songs to the world. Jalu's not a person. He's a force. He's an embodiment of a power. Jello is a walking encyclopedia, one of the best kept secrets in the country. It's a living communication line to human history. When Jalu dies, a whole bunch of knowledge goes, and that is lost forever. The moment of passing it on to the next generation has broken down. I'm going to Jalu passed away a leader, has to be from a good family. For Jalu's son, Larian, to take on his role, he's got really big boots to fill. I hope enough, bye one. I can't wait to hear Jalu play. He's obviously a master musician. My brother. I really have noticed Larry starting to shine. This is Jalu Kuruwiwi, Alo, my father. Those different types of energies are starting to work together. The film premiered at last year's Melbourne International Film Festival in a film that details the five years that director Ben Strunnan spent documenting Jalu's journey. I have to say, when I read the synopsis, it was a bit unexciting for me, but actually watching the trailer for this, it does look like quite a fascinating story. It's this really weird situation where Jalu is the end of the line for this particular part of Aboriginal culture. And so Jalu reaches out so desperately and tries to find new ways to encourage his community and more importantly, his son to take up this mantle and uh, kind of take over his role and his legacy and learn this this history. It actually seems quite fascinating, but also it's just really interesting that Gautier is, is involved in this entire story because he learns so much from this, these people and, and is, is willing to learn from them. So it's, it's quite fascinating how the, there's this kind of symbiosis that they have between each other. It's also kind of sad when you think about it that a white outsider and a musician is willing to sort of take up this cause while this man's son sits, I don't know, what, idly by, just sort of kind of sitting there going, yeah, well... It's an interesting situation where Gautier almost inspires Jalu's sons and his community to re-embrace this music, which is basically what holds all of their history together. It's kind of the the thing that they pass down from generation to generation. So it's I think it's really nice to see that actually happening. To me, this really sounds like kind of like a Disney Lion King-ish style film where these characters are healed through the power of song and stuff. <laughs> Right, Brent, back me up here. Oh, thanks for dragging me into this. But yeah, we were talking about this. I actually said to them, is this a cartoon? Because I I blanked out and didn't hear the word documentary. So I was just like, oh, it could be anything. Any 60,000 year long cultural heritage that's not getting passed on. And I was just like, okay, so wait, Gautier has just gone to this universe to like save music or something. Just like Ryan Gosling, save jazz. I don't understand. Doesn't that make it even nicer? It's a true life Disney story. That's cool. Yes, it definitely does. 
Well, also in limited release from this Wednesday is Take Every Wave. Jake took in this documentary on a surfing legend. So was it swell? (laughs) (laughs) Take Every Wave, The Life of Laird Hamilton, named after Hamilton's philosophy of never passing up a chance, is the latest documentary from Oscar-nominated director Rory Kennedy. In the early 1990s, Hamilton, along with a small group of friends collectively dubbed the Strap Crew because their feet were strapped to their boards, pushed the boundaries of surfing at Jaws Surf Break off the coast of Maui. Hamilton and his friends had started using inflatable boards to tow one another onto waves which were too big to catch under paddle power alone, what is now dubbed tow-in surfing. Surfers really were on the vanguard of the counterculture. It wasn't about attainment, it was about experience. That drive became a lifestyle. Legendary surfer Laird Hamilton has pioneered the sport of riding huge waves. Laird would do these things that nobody would ever seen. When he was out there surfing, it was like he was in his backyard playing with his toys. He's controversial. Cordial. Reckless. Visionary. Laird's not afraid of trying something new. He's not afraid of evolving. I'm naturally pulled towards exploration of the unknown. It teaches you courage and fear and respect. They were encountering waves that were so much bigger than anything anyone had ridden before. These guys were really pushing out into the unknown. He has to conquer that. That's what defines Larry. The film shows us a rebellious Hamilton growing up in Hawaii, his brief modeling career, his role as the bad guy in the cheesy surf flick North Shore, his relentless innovations in both windsurfing and surfing. The insights from his friends, pro surfers, surf magazine editors, and wife Reese help us understand Hamilton's drive and stature, but it mostly comes across as brand promotion. At times, it seems that this film project was conceived to preserve Hamilton's legacy while he's still active, which is why it keeps the focus on his surfing. His first marriage, the extent of his business empire, multimedia celebrity profile, and other factors are just glancingly noted. Fortunately, the footage featured in Take Every Wave is extraordinary. Shot by Alice Gu and Don King, the documentary makers had access to Hamilton's personal visual archive. The resulting imagery of his August 2000 ride at Chapu, a dangerous shallow water reef break southeast of Tahiti, considered the most intense wave ever surfed, is breathtaking. Take Every Wave won't provide many surprises for surfing fans that have followed Hamilton's high-profile career, and never probes too deeply. But this film should fascinate others for whom he's a less familiar personality. At the very least, the footage of Hamilton's wave riding is awe-inspiring, whether you've seen it before or not. Three stars. I do have a soft spot for action sports films like this, mainly because you can get some of the most incredible footage from them, like surfing documentaries, um, snow documentaries. You just end up with this stunning, stunning footage. You can sit there and watch someone ride away for like 30 seconds, no cut, and it's just the most spectacular spectacular vision that you've seen so it sounds like uh, that that is one really good reason to actually watch this and from like some of the stills that i've seen especially from the newer the more recent footage it does look really amazing yeah um it kind of reminds me of something i was thinking about when i watched the documentary mountain last year oh yeah the, the filmmakers actually have to pretty much invent new ways to film the athletes in motion surfing documentaries like the technology really had to be kind of invented on the fly to like film these guys like surfing down these like massive like you know 20 foot tall waves and um and doing all this like crazy shit so on like a technical level like these documentaries are pretty amazing and of course like mm. the footage they provide like through this like new filming technology is always going to be pretty awesome to watch which i think is like the, like for me anyway take every wave like the value of watching it i watched it uh near bondi with a pretty receptive crowd and i'm not like a massive fan of laird hamilton and this documentary isn't exactly the most even-handed documentary about his life but everyone was like totally absorbed by the footage of him surfing like no matter how much you personally find laird hamilton a bit of a shithead you can't take away the fact that the guy has had a pretty amazing life and surfed some like amazing waves in some beautiful locations and um as like a, a visual spectacle this um this documentary is worth going to see. Yeah, look, um, I've never seen a surf film from start to finish. I've seen bits and pieces of a bunch of them and quite frankly, I couldn't tell the difference between either of them. They are spectacular shots and they are beautifully filmed movies or documentaries, but 
when they try to add these personalities and these um, stories behind them, they just never really come through fairly authentically. They're just an excuse to show the, this incredible surfing vision and, you know, have mm. a killer soundtrack, have amazing vision of surfers and just pff, go for it. Well, I always like view these surfing documentaries as like when they first kicked off in the 70s, um, late 60s, yeah. like surfing documentaries are really about like that lifestyle, like, you know, that sort of hippie surfing culture. And they were interesting because surfing was like sort of a pretty niche thing back then. And now surfing documentaries are more about like, as you said, Jess, like, you know, selling products. So you have like sort of massive surf brands who make their own documentaries. And- Jake, it's kind of funny. Mm. You write an article on the evolution of surfing documentaries that is on a website called Switch. Yes, that is like so funny that you would mention that because I um, I did do that and uh, yeah. I ranked my, my favorite surfing documentaries um, on there as well. And they come complete with um, little video clips. So you can actually um, you can click on them and you can you know, get a little snippet of the documentary. And if you like it, you can um, you can watch it. That is super handy. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, if you want to, you can watch them. And uh, if you disagree with my opinion, you can um, jump online and um, and swear at me and stuff. <laughs> Get at me, bro. Uh, at Jake. Chatty. <laughs> if you disagree with his opinion, you can just go back and watch the 2002 classic <laughs> Blue Crush. It's all fun. I actually love Blue Crush. Blue Crush is awesome. Yeah, if you want to like watch a surfing movie with like an actual story and stuff, I think, um, and this is because the, the bar is like so low and plus chicks are so hot, um, Blue Crush is like a is a pretty good one. But uh, anyway, I was going to leave Blue Crush until um, uh, that, that Tim Whitten movie comes out. I feel like Brent was a big fan of Gidget. Oh. Yeah, for sure. You have just inspired my... Uh, Film choice for later in the podcast. <laughs> so go out and get mm. wet, everyone. Froth up. Oh. Take Every Wave, The Life of Laird Hamilton, is in limited release from this Wednesday. And check out my full review at maketheswitch.com.au. It was Hollywood's Night of Nights. There was a lot on the menu this year. It was the award's 90th anniversary, a year of celebrating diversity, the Times Up movement and redemption. Host Jimmy Kimmel was back, as was the culprits for last year's kerfuffle slash greatest Oscars moment ever, Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. But first, the awards. While it was one of the strongest years in film in recent history, the awards themselves held few surprises. The night started with Sam Rockwell winning Best Supporting Actor, and as the evening wore on, I, Tonya's Alison Janney picked up a gong, Darkest Hour's Gary Oldman, and Rockwell's co-star Frances McDormand picked up her second career Oscar for that Billboards movie. McDormand's speech, asking every nominated woman of the night to stand and be recognised, proved to be the event's show-stopping moment. Dunkirk took home all the technical awards with Aussie Lee Smith walking home with the statuette for his achievement in editing. The Best Screenplay Awards made history with the oldest winner ever, James Ivory, winning for Call Me By Your Name, and the first black man ever to win for screenwriting, Jordan Peele, paving the way for future persons of colour with a story in their heart. But the biggest winner of the night was Mexico. Disney Pixar's Coco took home Best Feature Animation as well as Best Song for Remember Me, beating out The Greatest Showman's This Is Me and turning its songwriter Robert Lopez into a two-time EGOT winner, the first in history. Then came the big ones. The Shape of Water filmmaker Guillermo del Toro won Best Director after the film previously won Best Art Direction and Score before finally completing the ceremony with the Best Picture win. Beating our supposed favourite three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, giving the Academy its first fantasy genre film win and stunning audiences at home going, well, now I have to go see that fish fucking movie. <laughs> we'll see you next year for the 91st Annual Academy Awards and all that they bring. Ciao. Earlier this week, I uncovered a fun fact about Colin McGregor, the brother of Ewan McGregor. It seems that the Star Wars celebrity's sibling is actually a British RAF pilot whose call sign is, uh, wait for it, OB2. I get it. Always living in his brother's shadow. (gasps) Poor guy. But there are so many useless yet endlessly entertaining facts about famous personalities, so why don't we share a few amongst ourselves? Okay, I'll jump in. Okay, uh, Michael Keaton, as in I'm Batman, Michael Keaton, his real name is Michael Douglas. But, of course, when you become an actor Mm -hmm. in Hollywood, you kind of have to register your name, and there already was a Michael Douglas. So he had to change it. So he borrowed his last name, borrowed, from one of his favourite actresses at the time, Diane Keaton. So that's where Michael Keaton gets his stage name from. (gasps) Ta-da. Okay, that one didn't get you. All right, fine, how about this one? (laughs) 
In Jurassic Park, the sound of the velociraptors is the sound of mating tortoises. Oh, hot. No, still nothing? Okay. Oh. How about this one? All right. Third one. Third one's a chance. Third one's a chance. Who goes and records <laughs> tortoises mating for the sound bite? David Attenborough. <laughs> David Attenborough's weird, sexy animal sounds. Best-selling CD. Wow. Uh, here's my third and final one, and this one's one of my favourite Hollywood little factoids. When Ben Affleck, Batfleck, and Matt Damon were shopping around the Goodwill hunting script, they put in, I was about to say they inserted, but that's so incorrect, that's so wrong. They put in the script a gay sex scene. Put in means <laughs> the same thing, guys. Jeez. To prove uh, who read it and who didn't. So when uh, someone <coughs> who shall not be named who ended up producing the film let's just call him HW, um, <laughs> said to them, I love the film, I want to buy it, but um, I think you should get rid of the gay sex scene. They are like, hey, look who read the script, you can have it. I have a fun fact about our favourite actress slash versatile whatever being entity. <laughs> oh, If somebody said to me we are all just a figment of her imagination, I would believe that she is the god that we are dreaming inside of. Tilda Swinton, hey, Tilda did you know her. her mother is Australian, so... We're going to claim her. I think she deserves an Order of Australia medal for everything she's ever done. Quick, Brent, go on to Ancestry.com and find out if your third cousin's twice removed. Uh, Sylvester Stallone of Rocky and Rambo fame. Uh, his first movie was a porno film called The Party at Kitty and Studs. It was a 1970 American softcore adult film. He got paid 200 bucks for it. He worked two days. The synopsis, uh, the film deals with the sex life of a young New York City woman, Kitty, and her boyfriend, Stud played by Sylvester Stallone. Stud is brutal and oafish, but Kitty is enamored with his sexual performance. They sometimes engage in light sadomasochism, with Stud belt-whipping Kitty. <laughs> Stud later posts a sign on a bulletin board inviting people to a party. Several people show up at Kitty and Stud's apartment, and they engage in group sex, with Stud servicing all the women. Whoa. And it was re-released after um, Stallone became um, successful. All of them. All of them, yeah. Um, I think it was like five. Yeah, I'm, I'm often enamored with someone's sexual performance. <laughs> um, yeah, apparently after, after uh, Rocky came out, they re-released this um, porno uh, with the title Italian Stallion. Oh, so Italian Stallion and this mm. film are the same. I think ones. you could sort of say almost Italian Stallion was like a prequel to Rocky. You could you could view it that way. So it's like Rocky 0.5. Oh my god. <laughs> Once again, speaking of weird sex things, I have a fun fact about the one and only Nicolas Cage. Now, I don't know if that this will change your opinion on him. Unlikely. Um, Jake, but according to the internet, which is never wrong, <laughs> I will point out, um he only eats animals based on how they have sex. So he only eats animals that are dignified when they mate, like birds and fish, and refuses to eat anything living that has sex in a way he doesn't find attractive. That seems completely logical. Just <laughs> oh when that man couldn't get weirder. <laughs> Sorry, I just found another one about Nicholas Cage. He had a stalker that was a mime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty scary. That's like, you wouldn't even hear the breathing down the phone. Yeah, that's actually pretty pretty creepy. Imagine being stopped by a lion. Marcel Mars, no! <laughs> it watches at you from a window that's not actually there or something. Oh. You get a phone call and then you just see him holding his hand in his face. And there's silence on the other end. Um, weirdly, there's there's a lot of facts out there about Sean Connery. He came up in quite a lot of lists that I came across. One of my favourite ones was that he was once pulled over by a British police officer for speeding, and the name of the officer was Sergeant James Bond. What? I thought that was quite good. Weird. 2010 was the only year since 1974 that Christopher Walken has not appeared in a film. Boom. That's nuts. Is that crazy? What a man. Walken. I've got a follow up Christopher Walken uh, bit of trivia. When he was 15, he was a, uh, a lion tamer for a year. So Christopher Walken's like sort of career in uh, in showbiz started off with- That explains uh, so much. Childhood lion taming. Yeah. His complete lack of- emotion he just like conquered fear and all that type of shit like when he was a teen because the lions could just like smell it on him so that's why he's so emotionless <laughs> speaking of fear nicole kidman is terrified of butterflies jeremy renner hawkeye from the avengers used to be a makeup artist and not like a fun like prosthetics makeup artist as in we're talking like mascara and lipstick makeup artist Queer Hawkeye for the straight guy. <laughs> no, he's not gay. Uh, Winston Buscemi and Vince Vaughn were um, filming some shitty thriller together 
in a pr- pretty crappy part of America. They actually got into like a, a bar fight, which turned into like a knife fight. Um, just the visual of like Vince Bourne and um, Steve Buscemi going back to back in some sort of hick bar in like a like a bar slash knife fight <laughs> just just cracks me up. Uh, I've got one. Frank Sinatra has three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for film, music, and television. I have another fun one. Go, B. Did you know the voice of Miss Piggy and Cookie Monster was also the voice of Yoda, Frank Oz? What a talented guy. Oh, do you know that the voices of Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse were married in real life? Oh. What? No way. How sweet. This music festival I went to on the weekend, uh, Grace Jones was um, was playing there, which ties in this anecdote. Uh, Dolph Lundgren, the action star, the guy who played He-Man and um, all that stuff. Uh, Rocky the bad guy, Rocky, ass, Rocky 5, Rocky 4. Uh, yeah, a bit of both. But uh, Dolph Lundgren actually has a master's <laughs> degree in chemical engineering. So he's like a legitimate brain. And he was um, studying his degree in Sydney. And he was a bouncer in King's Cross at a nightclub. Anyway, Grace Jones was touring at the time and... Um, She's has a reputation for being pretty insatiable. And so she just like saw this huge, good looking dude working as a bouncer at this nightclub. And she's like, come on tour with me and you can be my like personal bodyguard. And uh, that's that's how his um, career in movies started off. Wow. And so the bodyguard was made. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And which inspired the movie The Bodyguard and um, all the classics. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, a degree in chemical engineering. Dolph Lundgren isn't the only brains. Did you know Lisa Kudrow also has a degree in sociobiology? So she is actually pretty intelligent too. And I'm fairly sure Natalie Portman has a PhD in psychology as well. Same with, uh, was it Maya Bialik from The Big Bang Theory? She has a degree in like nuclear physics or something as well. And Matthew McConaughey was actually going to law school in 1993 when he gave it up to move into acting. And then ironically, his first breakout role in 1996 was as a lawyer. He's played a lawyer a few times. Lincoln Lawyer. Paperboy. No, wait, he was a journalist. No, he was a journalist in Paperboy, sorry. No, he was a lawyer. Wait, what was he? <laughs> Would you believe that Tommy Lee Jones and Al Gore were freshman roommates at Harvard? Because <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't. No. <laughs> George W. Bush was a cheerleader in college. <laughs> um, and actually, closer to home, Rebel Wilson became an actress after she contracted malaria. She was actually hallucinating that she was famous and winning an Oscar, and that inspired her to become an actress. It's just that easy, kids. Ugh, curse you, malaria. <laughs> now I hate you even more. Uh, this, one's a fu- this one's a funny one because it's ironic. OJ Simpson almost played the Terminator, but James Cameron thought his persona was, quote, too pleasant to play such a dark character. <laughs> <laughs> well, James Cameron has a poor judge of character. I like this one. During the chestbuster scene in Alien, the actors didn't know what was about to happen, so their reactions are 100% real. Yeah, Ridley Scott sprung it on them. It was amazing. Directors are awful people. <laughs> Speaking of awful directors, (laughs) Will Ferrell's reactions during the Jack in the Box scene in Elf were totally real too. The director surprised him every time he played with one of the toys by using a remote control. That cruel bastard. See what I mean? I love you, John Favreau. (laughs) And speaking of awful directors, I have one on Clint Eastwood from back in his um, acting days anyway. He is apparently allergic to horses. So um, in a lot (gasps) of scenes, he... he... Just like Kate Middleton. (laughs) Yes, he and Kate Middleton are the same person um in a lot (laughs) i always thought so have you ever seen them in the same room at the same time i have not i have not lucky he didn't direct that 12 strong movie from earlier in the podcast (laughs) i'm sure it wasn't through a lack of trying how did Clay would like film like all those westerns though like you know those he's in so many westerns how would he have avoided clarentine it was a mild allergy, so after a certain amount of time, he got really bad rashes. So he could ride them for a certain amount of time, or for like wider shots and things like that, they'd use stunt doubles. So it was a combination of the two. They were real horses. He just couldn't have a sex scene directly after filming a horse riding scene. <laughs> or a sex scene involving horses. What? There are two conversations going on here. <laughs> so if you have any favorite facts about actors or Hollywood or celebrities, let us know as well. Hit us up on social media, go to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at MakeTheSwitchAU and let us know. We have some great giveaways up for grabs this week. First up, we're giving you a chance to win one of 10 double passes to this year's Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Running from the 15th to the 26th of March, this year's festival features a fantastic lineup, including the Melbourne premiere of Freak Show the much-anticipated gay coming-of-age film Love, Simon, the Australian premiere of Bex starring Christine Larty and Mina Suvari, 
Ideal Home, starring Steve Coogan and Paul Rudd as unexpected parents, Khan Jury Grand Prize winner BPM, plus documentaries on Alan Carr, Andre Leon Tully, and Ian McKellen. You shall enter. (laughs) (laughs) Human Flow hits cinema soon, and we're giving you the chance to win one of 10 double passes to see it on the big screen. Over 65 million people around the world have been forced from their homes to escape famine, climate change, and war in the greatest human displacement since World War II. An epic film journey led by the internationally renowned artist Ai Weiwei gives powerful visual expression to the massive human migration. We're also giving away five copies of Only the Brave on Blu-ray. Based on true events, the film retells the story of the heroic Granite Mountain Hotshots and stars Josh Brolin, Miles Teller, and Jeff Bridges. The Hotshots are faced with their greatest challenge ever, the Yarnell Hill Fire. We're also giving away five copies of A Bronx Tale on Blu-ray. The directorial debut from Robert De Niro, the film is a coming-of-age story set in the 1960s when a boy growing up during a time of great social change is torn between two role models. His father, played by De Niro, a local bus driver, and a cynical neighborhood crime boss, played by Chaz Palminteri. Joe Pesci is also in this film. (laughs) Oh, fun fact about Joe Pesci, he apparently actually did bite Macaulay Culkin's finger in that scene in Home Alone. Yes, he did. (laughs) The facts never end. And finally, we're giving you the chance to win one of 10 Dendi Direct gift vouchers. Relax at home while watching the latest releases. This week, they've added Thor Ragnarok, God's Own Country, Only the Brave, Three Summers, Mark Felt, The Man Who Brought Down the White House, Borg vs. McEnroe, and Loving Vincent to their impressive collection. For your chance to win this and all our fantastic giveaways, head to maketheswitch.com.au forward slash comps now. And before we go, we'd like to offer you some cinematic inspiration with each of us suggesting one film that you should see this week and why. I'm going to go with one which may polarize this podcast, mainly because I'm pretty sure only two of the people on it will have watched it. Are you singling me out again? No, I'm not singling you out. I'm singling Jess out. (gasps) I'm also pretty sure she hates it. So, (laughs) which I'm really surprised about because it has one of her favorite actresses in it. Weirdly. So this is a film that I saw when I was in Dublin in 2008 and (laughs) I watched it like three consecutive nights in a row because I enjoyed it so much. It is a film called Gigantic. No, never seen it. Jess, I I lent you the the DVD, remember? (laughs) She sold it on eBay. No, she gave it back to me. You told me you didn't like it. But it's very possible that I hated it because I don't remember seeing it. But it does, it's got Zoe Deschanel in it. Yeah, exactly. It's got Zoe Deschanel. It's got Paul Dano. It's got uh, John Goodman. It is, um, it's a great cast. They're so funny. It's got Zach Galifianakis in it. Nice. Oh my God. He yes. Is. He's the homeless yeah, I man. I remember of course. this movie. <laughs> okay. I, I'm surprised by that fact. Essentially, it's it's about uh, this guy who is a, a mattress salesman. He ends up falling for this girl whose father comes in and buys a mattress off him. But she's like this complete klutz. Whereas he's got his life sorted together and is in the process of adopting a, a baby from China. But it's just, it's like this really beautiful film it's it's really hard to explain because it's very strange and it has very very dark moments and very very humorous ones but it's just this kind of like fly on the wall look at this very weird relationship that should not be at all um but it's 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 very sweet and it's probably the movie where zoe deschanel swears the most i've ever heard so it's quite interesting in that regard. zoe no so much swearing anyway it's like it's like when you see anne hathaway's boobs in brokeback mountain you're like no you've ruined yourself for me and then you see her boobs in love and other drugs and then you see her boobs in that other movie that she did and then you see her boobs. she's princess diaries put them away away. Dead, my friend. The Disney princess is dead. She's a, she's an adult. She won an Academy Award for playing a whore for crying out loud. Not <laughs> a great one. A singing whore. <laughs> a whore nonetheless. Anne Hathaway is the singing whore. Da, 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 da. I would watch that film. What was that movie? Sorry, it was like Love and Other Drugs. And what was the whore movie you mentioned before? Uh, Jake is making the list of Anne Hathaway boob films. <laughs> Brokeback Mountain uh, and the horror movie. Okay, cool. All right, I got. Them. I think I got. Them. I got them all down. 
I need to be like. Uh, <laughs> it's called light. That's it's light movie. I feel I have to be informed on uh, all this Anne Hathaway the stuff. The singing whore movie. The singing whore. Okay, well, it's not so good, but anyway. <laughs> the singing whore movie. <laughs> I would definitely watch a film called The Singing. Whore. I think we'll start working on it this week, Brent. Assuming it was a musical. What else would it be, yeah. honestly? And it's obviously going to start Anne Hathaway without her top off at some point. So, oh, hmm. God. <laughs> no, no. All right, Jess, can you top the singing whore? What is your I'll pick try. for this week? Okay, so uh, <laughs> my pick for this week won the Academy Award uh, in 2013 or 24. I think it came out in 2013, so it won 2014. Bear with me. Um, for best original screenplay, it is her. Directed by Spike oh, Jones. Yes. This is the guy behind. This, yet. this is the guy behind Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, and Where the Wild Things Are. So it's set in the near future, where a man played by Joaquin Phoenix ends up falling in love with his artificially intelligent operating system, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. At the time after this movie came out, when the Academy Award nominations were being rolled out and all the other award ceremonies, there was a lot of controversy because uh, there were a lot of people, myself included, who thought that Scarlett Johansson should have been nominated but she was deemed ineligible as only a vocal performance and big controversy ensued um nonetheless she was not nominated and uh that following year lupita nyango won for 12 years a slave righteously so anyway so this film it's just beautiful that's that's the best way to describe it it's just beautiful you might think it's strange or creepy even that you follow a man falling in love with an absent-bodied voice but, but you've got to see it to you understand. Gotta, you got to see it, absolutely. You have to see it to understand. It's, um, yeah, don't worry. It's, it all gets handled. This film also has Amy Adams in it and Chris Pratt. And you do, you see a genuine and authentic love story unfold before your eyes. And it's just, it's so unique and sensational. And when people say that there is no more originality left in Hollywood, you point them to this film. So, uh, yeah, 2013's Her. Excellent. Excellent pick. And uh, mm. Brent, you're up next. What have you got in store for us? What gem from the annals of Hollywood do you have for us? Well, Jake inspired me before oh. thinking about surf movies. And then you inspired me by <laughs> mentioning Gidget. So I am going to go with one of my favorite films by one of my favorite playwrights. So this is the 2000 comedy horror Psycho Beach Party. <laughs> Uh, basically Oscar award winning no, psycho beast definitely party. not it didn't it didn't win any academy awards it had a budget of 1.5 million dollars and only made 267,000 or whatever um, but basically but what how did it happen what charles bush is really good at is oh everything because i love him and love everything he does but he's really good at finding the genre and really subverting it so he's in a broadway sort of performer often performs as a woman instead of a man and so at the end of a lot of his performances back in the day he'd be like and come back next week for blah 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 and this and this and the one that he would always name is Gidget Goes Crazy and Gidget Goes Crazy ended up becoming Psycho Beach Party where there's this character who's determined to learn how to surf and she gets nicknamed Chicklet by the surfer guys. However, she starts displaying multiple personalities and experiences inexplicable blackouts right at the same time as people start getting horrifically murdered on the beach. And it is so <laughs> funny. Like, you've probably never heard of it, uh, but Amy Adams is in it. Um, Charles Bush is in it playing Captain Monica Stark and everyone has fantastic names like the surfing guru is the great Kanaka then we have Bettina Barnes is a B-movie actress played by Kimberly Davies then you have fun names like Starcat and Yo-Yo and Provolone like it's just everything that captures that fantastic <laughs> 60s surfer movie but is also just like so twisted, so camp, and so funny. So in the original production of the play, Charles Bush actually played the chiclet character. So it's it's very, very bizarre and great, and you'll have an incredible time. You might struggle to find it, but good. But once you do, <laughs> it is definitely oh my god, a film Nicholas Brendan is in this movie. Yeah, he played play Starker in Buffy yeah. the Vampire Slayer. How good! Oh, and Lauren Ambrose as well. Oh, I love her. <laughs> 
That's so exciting. I used to own that movie on DVD. What? True story. Oh, my. Yep. I love it. I'm a big Charles Bush fan. Yeah, I didn't mind it. I think I might have like lost it on the move from um, when I moved from Newcastle to Sydney. But um, yeah, I remember sort of watching it. I think I picked it up because um, I just finished watching Buffy. And I was like, um, I thought Nicholas Brendan was pretty cool, uh, who plays Starcat. And um, yeah, it was awesome. Again, sorry, uh, Kimberly Davies, pretty hot. As Brent said, if you can find it, it's well worth the squeeze, I think. But there could be one copy lying somewhere between Newcastle and Sydney. So uh, hunt that one down. That's like the only copy in existence, I think. <laughs> the only Australian copy left in existence. It's very good. All right, Jake, let's wrap things up. What have you got for us this week? Let us know your recommendation. So uh, the Alliance French Film Festival is uh, on at the moment. So I've been watching a lot of French movies. And one of the ones that struck me was um, a film called Swimming Pool by uh, Francois Ozon, who has a new movie coming out at the festival called uh, Double Lover. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Swimming Pool's uh, 2003 uh, erotic thriller. It's about a British crime novelist called Samantha Morton. She travels to uh, a publisher's summer house in southern France to write her next book. And uh, she gets interrupted by uh, the publisher's daughter, who is pretty hot and frequently nude and played by Ladine <laughs> yeah. uh, Sanya. So, you know, that's pretty cool. And um, also, like, the author is played by Charlotte Rampling, who is um, no slouch herself in um, you know, terms of hotness. Uh, I don't think Charlotte Rampling ever was, is ever going to go out of style. She's, um, she's a pretty attractive lady. The movie itself is... Um, it's pretty interesting just in terms of uh, the amount of symbolism, double meaning. Um, it's like it got a very slow, deliberate, languorous pace. You know what? If you liked, you know, movies like Call Me By Your Name or, you know, those movies that are kind of, you know, set during summertime in Europe and they, they feature a lot of um, limbs and, you know, they're obsessed with kind of like how people look and stand and lay and that type of thing. Yeah, it's, it's a great movie. Just a really well-composed film and I think one of Francois Ozon's strongest films as well. So if you want to like uh, buff up before you go and see Double Lover, um, check out Swimming Pool first. Well, some great suggestions in that bunch, and you can find the links to all the articles we've talked about on this week's podcast at maketheswitch.com.au. Please also subscribe to Switchcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to rate us and stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Charlie underscore David. Jess? At Miss Jess underscore Switch. Brent? At Brent C. Davidson. And Jake? At Jake Chatty. Like it? Follow it. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at MakeTheSwitchAU to stay up to date with all the latest reviews, news, trailers, and giveaways. And you can find all the notes and links to everything we've discussed on this week's podcast, as well as other episodes, by visiting switchcast.com.au. On next week's show, we'll be checking out the latest incarnation of Tomb Raider, the refugee documentary Human Flow, National Theatre Live's Young Marks, and the Aussie comedy Bonanza, That's Not My Dog. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all next week.